Today on the show, we see you standing there, so haughty, so confident, and we hope you find solace in your writing and your books and and your podcasts and, <laughs> and your video games. I don't know. Yeah. Those all actually sound like great things. Like It's a great weekend. Yeah, I would find solace in all those. Lots of solace. So much. <laughs> a quantum of solace. <laughs> Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. My name is Leo. And today we wrap things up, Leo. Yeah. TV. Dune. <laughs> the year 2000. The sci-fi channel. Picture it. What a great collection of words <laughs> <laughs> yes oh my gosh i'm excited to talk about today's episode we have of course talked about part one and part two of sci-fi channels frank herbert's dune miniseries from back in 2000 and today we'll be wrapping up by diving deep into part three of that series and right off the bat i want to say i know i've been coming in pretty hard at this series you've loved it i've been a bit more critical about it Part three, though, my favorite of the bunch, hands down. It's a strong ending. Strong ending. And I think makes part one make more sense in a lot of ways. But yeah. nevertheless, before we get too far into our discussion, let's go over some housekeeping. So for spoilers, the miniseries covers the events of the first Dune book. So spoiler warning for Dune and, of course, Denis Villeneuve's adaptation. That's right. And a reminder that the best way to support this podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash gomjabar. We've actually just recently rolled out some updates to the Patreon structure. So now our patrons actually get more goodies for less money. How about that? Nice. Some of the benefits our patrons get are things like totally ad-free episodes, weekly bloopers and bonus clips, and getting to vote on future episode topics. Have fun. Now, of course, we have to give a huge shout-out to our Quisats Hatterack level patrons. Case Aiken, Nate Hyde. Y'all are what the Benny Gesserit wanted, but you are so much more. Indeed. They can't control you. Yes, and you came before your time. You came... <laughs> you, you, you came before your time, indeed. <laughs> but in a good way. But in a good way. I realized how that sounded after. <laughs> Another great way to support the show is to check out our amazing merch on gomjabarshop.com. I like to describe that storefront like Hot Topic, but if Hot Topic was actually cool and totally obsessed with Dune. And we love to get your messages. So email us at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Send us lore questions. Send us hellos and pictures of your pets. We love to hear from you. Podcast at gmail.com. For sure. All right, that wraps up housekeeping. Let's quickly go over the game plan for today. Y'all know the drill by now. We're going to dive deep into the final 90 minutes of this miniseries, 
part three. As always, we recommend that you watch the miniseries before you listen to this episode. We are by no means going scene by scene in some sort of comprehensive way. The assumption is you have watched it already. The way to watch it is a bit tougher. You can either try and find some like shady stream online, <laughs> or you could buy the Blu-ray and DVD. Unfortunately, this miniseries isn't currently available on any major streaming services. So those are really your only two options. Just like the last two episodes today, we will start with a broad overview of part three, followed by each of us have picked two likes, two things that we maybe wish were a little bit different, and then we'll wrap up by sharing our favorite scene from today's episode. And of course, this is Gam Jabbar. You know what to expect at this point. There's going to be plenty of lore discussion. There will be comparisons to both the Denny and David Lynch adaptations sprinkled all throughout today's conversation as well. So before we dive in, let's take a short break, but don't go anywhere, folks, because when we come back, we are wrapping up this miniseries and talking all about part three. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you had a nice break. Let's get into it. Let's talk about the overview of part three. So part three covers the final section of the book. And just like the previous sections, this one is broadly pretty accurate, pretty accurate to the events, the narrative beats to, of the original novel. Yeah, totally. Part three picks up after the two year time skip and we see Paul's growing influence among the Fremen. Right. In the opening scenes of the episode, they recover Paul's father's skull, and then later he rides the worm, he re reunites with Gurney. We also see things go down on Giddy Prime, just like they do in the book, Fade's attempt on the Baron's life. We see Alia and Jessica in the Southern Sieges. All of this tracks with what's in the book, of course. There's some scheming from the Baron and the Emperor, which ultimately culminates in the battle at Arakeen, where Paul defeats the Harkonnen and the Sardaukar. And then part three and this miniseries ends in the same place the book does, in Arakeen Palace, when Paul defeats Fade Ratha in one-on-one -on -one combat and takes everything Shaddam IV owns, including his Air Jordans and the Imperial Un Throne. Uncreased. Uncreased. Uncreased Imperial Throne. <laughs> now, just like the previous episodes, this episode did include some new scenes unique to the series, and some of them are killer. <laughs> some of them are so good. So good. Even the first scene is a guerrilla-style Fremen raid where, of course, as mentioned, uh, Leto Atreides' skull is retrieved. But also we see the tactics that the Fremen are employing to offset and keep offset the Harkonnens, right? Yeah. All stuff that we only hear about in the book in hindsight, we actually get to see in this episode. And that's a big theme that I'm going to talk about later as well. We get to see some stuff that's only briefly mentioned in the books, which is fun. Yeah. We also get to see Alia in the room as that one Fremen baby is born. In the book, we only hear about this after the fact when Alia tells us, but here we actually see the moment take place. And we see how she touches the baby. It falls silent. Everyone is like whispering, oh my gosh, she's a witch. She's a witch. Yeah. 
and we experience some of that alienation that Alia goes through as a weird toddler with generations worth of knowledge among the Fremen. We get some unique to the series, Irulan scenes. Love them. Love them. Going to talk about them myself in a little bit. Uh, but first with Shadaman Fenring, where she cracks the Arrakis case wide open. <laughs> Detective Irulan is <laughs> on the case, her pipe fully stacked, smoking all the time. And then later, as she inquires into the definitely, definitely a hottie, uh-huh. Mwadib. Yeah. She's like, but have we seen him? Right. Does he have feet pics online? <laughs> the agent's like, that is so specific. Hyper specific. I, I learned something about you here, Alon. Damn. I mean, I'll look into it <laughs> uh, on incognito browser. But I'll look into it for you. Like, Mwadib right. feet pics. Oh, my God. <laughs> you have to use Bing for that just to make sure you get this. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Keep safe search on, y'all. That might take you down some <laughs> wild rabbit holes. We also get some cool Paul visions in this miniseries where he sees some dancing worms who then get killed off by this onslaught of grass that starts to grow across the desert. I actually read this as a pretty direct homage to that terrible 1984 movie scene where Paul in that movie literally like talks to the worms and they listen to him and he controls them at first i legitimately thought that's what was happening here as well before it was made clear that this is just a vision that he's seeing glad they didn't go that route but it does feel like a pretty on the nose homage to the 1984 scene agreed i think the visuals are are too similar for it to be unintentional now we get a fantastic little confrontation with a guild agent uh, very wiggly, this wiggly he's guy. So wiggly. He's so wiggly. It's clearly a snake in human disguise. Where we begin to see this duality of Paul Atreides and Muad'Dib, right? Where the agent says, "I'm protected by all this bureaucracy," and he goes, "That doesn't apply anymore." Exactly. Very cool. Also features my favorite line read of the entire show, which is the B quiet <laughs> so good very oh good. my god alec newman Ugh. really brought it in part three i did not believe him as paul in the first two parts but here i was sold i'm just saying i think it was like the direction was go whiny go petulant go young yeah so that now would feel this much cooler you it know would stand in stark contrast to now yeah and it does it does it really does it truly does <laughs> We also get various scenes sprinkled throughout this episode of Shaddam and his imperial court struggling to figure out how to deal with this religious fanatic known as Muad'Dib that they keep hearing so much about. Supposedly, he's a total hottie. He's got feet pics. (laughs) We actually get the scene where the Sardaukar are sent to the southern, basically the southern sieges or the southern caves. And this is the assault where Alia is captured and baby Leto II is killed. And incredible to see this scene. Incredible. Another scene we see during the assault on Arakina a little bit later is Raban, Beast Raban, and how he <laughs> oh dies. God. He's killed yeah. in this scene by the very people he spent years oppressing. Subtle. 
another totally unexpected thing to see, but I'm so glad we got it. Yeah. That is a brief overview of the episode. Again, it follows very closely to the major plot events of the book. But as is usual with this miniseries, it adds its own flair, its own touch, and we get some unique scenes that in this episode worked really well and showed us things that happened off page. Let's actually dig deeper and share in more detail two things that we each loved about this episode. And Leo, I'm going to let you go first because my point builds off of your point. So I'll hand it off to you. That makes a certain sense. Okay. Well, my first point, the first thing I liked about this episode is Paul Atreides. Yeah. I'll be upfront about this. I'm a sucker for overpowered protagonists. And this episode was just fan service for me, the fan. It was such a ride. They made Paul so cool, but also they started to lay the foundations for Paul in Dune Messiah in a way that I really respected. Broadly, we see how much he's grown, right? As we've talked about already, like looking at bull cut, petulant feet on the table, Paul Atreides from episode one, right. seeing him now with his fucking dashing new haircut. He's got those dope eyes of a bad. His mannerisms are completely different. They're reserved. He carries himself with this like confidence. <laughs> We also see the beginnings of this pivot into Muad'Dib, the leader of the jihad to come. Uh, but I want to get specific. I want to talk about some scenes. We sure. already kind of are, but let's do it. <laughs> the Sardaukar among the smugglers scene is amazing. Almost my favorite scene. So good. We get just some incredible choreography here where Paul is just so confident. He is un touchable he catches the knife when it's thrown at oh him oh my god so good we get to see the weirding dodge that comes back later the juke like, amazing oh the juke is so good he pressed o at the right time got those invincibility <laughs> frames and then he's like submit commander and the commander's like what no and he does the voice and we get to see just how quickly i also at this point googled alec newman height because he's not a tall dude he's five eight but the way he stares up at the Sardaukar commander, incredible. Still felt like he was looking down on him. It was amazing. Yeah. Now, not long after that, we get Paul confronting the weirdly wiggly <laughs> spacing guild guy. <laughs> who's like trying to protect himself with red tape. He's trying to protect himself with bureaucracy and going, oh, you can't hurt me. And Paul interrupts him with this like unbelievable read that be quiet. And it's electric. I've rewatched just that little moment a dozen times, and it's still so much fun. Yeah. It's great. It's not explained why the guild's navigator is there, though. Did they ever explain why he's, like, randomly in a siege? Right after that, there's a line from Gurney, from the smugglers. They've been seeing guild agents everywhere buying up spice because their navigators are seeing the blindness of the possible nexus of Paul okay. ending spice production. Gotcha. So he's like there trading with the smugglers or something. Like that's where the connection is coming from, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. I mean, I don't, I, I think that's kind of their implication there. It is weird. Yeah. Uh, I'm not questioning it. It just, it went right from that Sardaukar scene to the guild person scene. And I was like, where did this guy come from? <laughs> I know. It was a jump. Yeah. And 
I don't know if that was like two weeks later, 45 minutes later, they're like, okay, Otham, take him away into this other room. <laughs> wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. Wiggle, wiggle. <laughs> How long has he been wiggling in that room? <laughs> He's been wiggling for weeks, sir. <laughs> we can't get him to stop. <laughs> God, that's so silly. I'll say another little moment that really stuck out to me about Paul and portraying Paul accurately is the moment where Paul is venting to Chani after Gurney's attempted kill of Jessica. And in the book, Paul just reflects in the tunnel outside. Seeing him talk it out with Chani gives Chani the respect she needs because she is his rock. She is like his only source of comfort for most of his, like this, this whole time in his life. And I just love seeing that vulnerability. I love, you know, he like puts his head in her lap and she's comforting him, which really just demonstrates that they know what they're doing with these characters and how much these characters mean to each other. Yeah. But also the moment that kind of really took my breath away was his conversation with Jessica that appears to be basically a new scene kind of mixed from moments of the book. And it's basically her saying, hey, I've seen this plan of yours. I've seen the jihad. Uh, a lot of shit's going to go crazy. And throughout this scene, the light is shifting more and more red. And this, during this scene, we get some incredible lines, of course. He says, I'm powerless to stop it, which is this huge theme in this book and in Messiah. He says, terrible purpose awaits us, right? Which that's kind of, a, again, this mantra that exists in Dune. The ashes of complacency. <laughs> New society will be born from the ashes of complacency. Amazing. And, of course, quote, there are no innocents anymore. Oof. Which is just exactly what we need to hear from Paul to know that Paul isn't 100% the good guy. Right. It is so much more effective to hear that line said out loud. Yeah, Because that line exists in the book and you read it and you're like, yeah, yep, cool, no more innocence. But to actually hear your hero say that out loud with such conviction, that is a hundred times more chilling. He just states it like a fact. Yeah. He's like, no, there there are no innocents. And like, what are you talking about? No. Yeah, 100% agreed. It's It's wild. It's wild to hear that spoken from this character that we've spent seven or eight hours coming to be on the side of dune's an effective story just <laughs> top to bottom it's a great story i'll wrap up by saying i think this episode delivers a vision of paul that knocks it out of the park kind of capturing the nuance that you need to have for this nuance story that has so many layers and i think honestly if villeneuve and his team and sweet timothy chalamet are able to even get close to hitting this bar it's going to be a masterpiece. It's going to be so good. There's just so much to look forward to in part two. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And actually, I'll take the nice tie that you've uh, wrapped up here and <laughs> sure. slowly unspool that thread. Because <laughs> sure. I would also like to talk and gush about Paul a little bit. That was my first pick for the thing that I loved was Paul Atreides. But to narrow it down a bit more and maybe even build off of your point, Specifically, how this episode treated the birth of the tyrant Paul Muad'Dib Atreides. 
I think this series handled his transformation into both the prophetic leader, Muad'Dib, and his problematic rise to power super, super well. In the last couple chapters of the book, there is this like deeply unsettling feeling about our hero, Paul, that starts to like creep into the writing and creep into his interactions with his allies and his friends. And the miniseries, I think, captures that perfectly here in the third act. Yeah. We actually talked about this. We spent a lot of time in our last two Dune Book Club episodes talking about the red flags that start to appear in those final chapters about Paul, how he's seemingly starting to lose touch with his Atreides moral compass and all of these little hints sprinkled throughout about his despotic rule to come. Dune, as we've discussed before on this podcast, is not a hero's journey where Paul quote-unquote wins at the end and becomes emperor and everyone lives happily ever after. It is a warning against the rise of a despot and a messiah like Paul, who wields so much influence and whose best intentions. I mean, he's out here trying to stop the jihad, right? Yeah. That's a objectively good thing, but even that is corrupted by just the sheer force of his power and the breadth of his influence. Some notable moments I wanted to quickly shout out that I think this miniseries captures really well about this transformation and about these red flags is one, Paul's relationship with his mother and how in the book it becomes very strained. In the miniseries, they lean into that quite a bit too. There are some really tense conversations between Paul and his mother in the miniseries. And you see her starting to question, like, aren't you taking this whole prophet thing too far? Like, uh, aren't you leaning into religion too much? You need to not do that. And Paul responding in like this cold way, we're manipulating them. Yeah, I'm doing what needs to be done. He's also losing touch with his humanity throughout this episode because, as we know, his visions show him so much that he is as close to omniscient as any living person has ever been in the history of humanity at this point. Yeah. And that makes it hard for him to like think and feel like a normal human being when he can see and experience so much because of his visions. You mentioned that conversation with Chani where he says super chilling stuff. I think one thing he says early to Chani in this episode that really stuck with me is when she asks him, Wadi, will we ever have peace? And his response is We'll have victory. Super chilling response from Paul. Yeah. Another thing I think the miniseries captured super well was the death of his firstborn, of little baby Leto, and how that basically tips him over the edge. Yeah. That is one of the scariest moments in the book when you hear Paul's internal monologue and he's like, they don't know what true terror can be. Right. And... We get a similar scene here as well, where he tells Chani, our firstborn is dead. And Alec Newman just like does this thing with his face where you just know he is gone. There will be no mercy against the Harkonnens now. It's so good. And also we get time with baby Leto. Like we actually get to see the baby and hang out with the baby. We get to see the moments leading up to the baby's death. Yeah. So it means so much more yep just to your point i think that they captured 
how much it means to Paul and Shawnee to have had that kid and then to have lost that kid is magnificent and is a testament to the real trauma of that experience and what it means to these characters and what it means to anybody. It's, oh, it's so good. It's handled so well. And maybe this is bold of me, but perhaps handled a little better than the book. Because these last few sections of the book feel very rushed and we don't see pivotal scenes like the death of baby Leto, but we do here in the miniseries. I'm agreed, 100%. Recognizing characters like Irulan and characters like Chani and characters like, well, Hurrah even, and recognizing events like the death of Raban and the death of Leto too, it's like those things all matter. And honestly, maybe putting more of them into these adaptations is the way to honor the spirit of the book. Totally. So I'll wrap up my first point here with one more shout out. I want to talk about that cave of bird scene where Paul declares himself the Duke, puts on that ring and declares himself the Duke. And he refuses to challenge Stilgar. He refuses to challenge all the knaves and he gives all the gathered Fremen a real talking to. Yeah. I know I joked in the last episode that the Fremen sure do love a good chant. And to be fair, they do love a good chant, a lot of chanting in this scene. But I loved how deeply uncomfortable this scene was to watch in a good way. Yeah. I don't think it is an accident that this scene is a large group of people all chanting, basically doing what very much looks like a Hitler salute. It does look awfully like that. You know, there's maybe like an extra step in there before they raise the arm and the hand. But the end result is still visually the same thing. Like they're basically doing the Hitler salute, chanting Paul Muad'Dib. And it's this giant group of people looking up to their Duke, to their Messiah, to this person that they will do anything for. And all of that feels very intentional. All of that imagery feels very intentional. And it certainly made me feel deeply unsettled. Which, again, to my larger point about capturing how Paul is transforming and becoming this despotic ruler, so well done. Like, maybe a little on the nose with the Hitler salute, and ma- like, the, like this Paul equals space Hitler comparison there, but still, really well done, and I personally enjoyed it. And I think by the end of the miniseries, when Paul takes the throne and walks away from Irulan, I found myself being like, should this guy be in charge? And that is exactly the question viewers should be left with by the end of Dune, if it has been adapted well. So really, like, hats off to the series for nailing that and nailing it in a way that we have yet to see in any other adaptation. Also remarkable, like, how poignant of a point that is to nail in such a goofy show, like, in such a silly, over-the-top show that takes itself like way too seriously sometimes. And like the tone is all over the place, but there's some real nuance there. Just really, it's fun. It's fun. Okay, Leo, what's item number two on your things you loved? Well, like always, couldn't choose just a second one. So I chose two and and pretending it's one thing. Chani and Irulan. Perfect. Yeah. No, we we know the drill now. We're we're with you. Listen, uh, you establish a pattern, you stick to it, consistency. Make a brand image. It's great. Now, broadly, I would say Irulan and Johnny are hugely important characters to the plot and to the events of Dune. 
But as we've mentioned, Frank's books are very Atreides-focused. And I don't think that that's a problem, but looking back and in retrospect, we realize perhaps how pivotal some of these characters are, like Irulan and like Chani. I wanted to take this moment to basically highlight how I think this episode in particular really drives home both Irulan and Chani's roles in the Imperium. So, first up, Irulan. Not a secret. I love Irulan. What? I, what? I know. And, get this, I like how this adaptation treats Irulan. Wow. I know. First time I've said it. Bold. Hot take. Spicy. Yeah. <laughs> Irulan is given a ton of new scenes in the miniseries that all feel right to her character and clearly demonstrate that the people working on making this a reality understood the book deeper than a kind of a surface level. And, and to get specific about this episode, we get a few incredible scenes, but to start, we get this incredible scene where Irulan is in the room, she with, she's with Shaddam and Fenring, and she just very casually walks them through what she's figured out, right? She's got her Sherlock Holmes hat on. She's got her pipe. It's great. She doesn't actually, but in a series of very silly hats, it would be expected. <laughs> I will say a little later on in this very short scene, you know, Fade is flirting with her <laughs> by the window. He like yeah. walks over. He goes, I've decided we're alike. He's yeah, like I, I, I don't know, like flirt, flirting is a very strong word for what's happening. Like he's slinging his <laughs> erection at her. Yeah, he's really he's trying so hard. And her response, first of all, I'd be confused if you didn't try. Oh my god, it's so funny to me. It's so good. And then her last line: "Sometime, remind me to tell you about the ancient legend of the phoenix." And he's like, "Oh yeah." We're going to talk again sometime. Hell yeah. As she walks away is such a fun tip of the hat to the fact that I think at this point she's figured out Paul Muadib is alive and to have heard from this guy. Oh, he died. And it's just, it's lovely. Yeah. It's lovely to kind of hint at that. I mean, listen, Irulan's out here literally fending off fuck boys, <laughs> this <laughs> fade fuck boy while playing 5d chess and making jokes about it for herself it's just it's spectacular it's amazing finally in the final scenes irulan is honestly one of the stars she's i think one of the focal points of the final moments she is the first first of all to recognize alia as paul's sister and the one to reveal muadib is paul atreides which is fucking incredible she is also the one to suggest the marriage. She's like, I think we both know the solution to this. And to give Irulan that moment where she's like, oh, I know what I can do to like make sure that this resolves this big problem. And Shaddam's like, no, I don't want to know. Please. Incredible to give Irulan that agency. Yeah. But then Paul turns away from her, right? As we know he will leaving her framed beautifully in the light, this like fading light in her like black shawl. It's really just a beautiful moment that not only gives her more of an active role in everything, but also really does capture the tragedy of Irulan's story. 
Right. You know, everything she was talking about with Paul in the beginning, in the first episode, is basically manifested and realized. I've always been utilized. I've always been used. I've always been, I am an, I am a princess. Sure. But is that really happiness? And now with Paul, they just both have to acknowledge here we are here. I am to be used and here you are to use me. Yeah. That conversation really does come full circle. That's a great point. It's so good. Finally, just to talk about Chani for a second, we have Chani in this adaptation. And generally, again, her scenes are accurate to the book. Uh, at this point, that's not really a surprise. But more notably, we get to see how important of a person Chani is in the universe. And naturally, part of this is because of her relationship to, um, to Muadib. But it's also this active relationship in this series. Like she's making these choices and she's kind of standing up for herself in these moments that I really appreciate. And, you know, in this episode, we get our expected scenes, right? Johnny knifing that Fremen who wanted to fight Paul. Hell yeah. Which, God, I can't wait to see Zendaya fuck someone up <laughs> just because I wanted to fight Timothy Chalamet. That's going to be so good. But we also get a scene with Chani and Jessica and her baby, Leto, too, which I just so appreciate. We actually get to see Chani and her son. It's incredible. Not only does this give space for her relationship with Jessica to have more dimension, and I know I like Jessica going, Paul is not like other men. And Chani's like, I think I know that better than most. <laughs> Jessica, Jesus. But both of them are written so true to their characteristics. And it's this scene that feels like it was written by Frank, but it, I, I don't think it's one for one, right? which is just so impressive to me. And it's also just lovely to get time with Leto, too. Like, I know that he dies not long after, but he is one of those deaths in Dune that I feel is treated very nonchalantly in Frank's book. So to get this time with him and to actually feel a little bit of that loss that Paul and Johnny feel is just amazing. Now, I will wrap up, I swear. <laughs> just a couple of a couple of quick moments. A couple more pages. That's fine. We'll, we'll just, get through them. It's Listen, it's two more pages. It's fine. <laughs> no. Uh, Paul's long speech to rally the Fremen, and he finishes with that, I am your duke! And it's just silence. You're right. It ends with a very problematic chant. But recall, silence, and then Chani steps forward and says, As Liet taught us. And that's what begins the cascade. Like, Chani is in that moment the catalyst for, she's the bridge from Wadib to the Fremen in that moment where Paul is choosing to change Fremen tradition. Yeah. And then finally, Irulan slinks forward, Julie Cox in her beautiful golden dress, to propose marriage. Jessica goes to stop Paul or to warn him, or something. And Chani shuts her down. And this blew my mind. Because in the book, I went back and checked, in the book, Chani is there, but she's very withdrawn. She's still mourning, and she's quiet. And she whispers, everything she says is in whisper. And Paul is consoling her, right? Paul is just taking the throne, but he's also going, my love, don't worry. You're the only girl for me, babe. Right. You know? <laughs> And she's just the quiet, meek there. She's receiving all of that. She's not doing anything. We know that Chani is a Fremen. And throughout this various Dune books, 
we hear about Fremen decisions, right? Capital F, capital D. Yeah. Where a Fremen will choose something that most of us would go, why? No, 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 no. I don't want to do that. But it's for the good of the tribe. And the look in her face, the actress for Chani, the look in her face when she tells Jessica not to interfere and this is for the good of us all is so good. My God. It's like maybe just because I was thinking about all this and I was in my head a bit, but I really see the reluctant acceptance of the need for Paul to have this marriage with Irulan in Johnny's face. Right. And I mean, even small moments like this, right? In the book, she is, like you're saying, distraught. Her son has been murdered. She's watching the love of her life marry another woman for political reasons. And we know how strong Chani is, but it takes even small moments like these that you're describing for us to see that. And I think that's what the miniseries did so well, is it took these things that are written in between the lines. It's not like they don't exist in Frank's book, but they aren't explicitly called out. And what the miniseries did with Irulan, what it did with Chani, is shine a light on these characters that, you know, lived very much in Paul's shadow in the book. Yeah. I mean, the book focuses, as it is expected to, on the superhero man (laughs) at the center of the story. Right. It makes a certain sense. But I think seeing this adaptation of Frank's book, even 20 years ago, that made these changes to better give space to the incredible women of Dune is amazing. And all I'm saying is hopefully, Denny, you're taking notes. For sure. I couldn't agree more. Well, that's <laughs> that was my nine things that I liked. <laughs> what is your second thing that you liked? <laughs> well, I'm going to stick with just one. And this is pretty quick, but... I don't understand. <laughs> what does that your, mean? Your Mentat brain is just malfunctioning. <laughs> your eyes have rolled into the, into your head, but they aren't rolling back. Something's broken. <laughs> just vomiting blood. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so <laughs> item number two that I really loved about this episode, we've already sort of touched on and brought up, but I liked how much of the things that are off page made their way on screen in this adaptation. Yeah. Honing in a bit more, like specifically what I loved to see more of in the miniseries was the climactic battle at the end. Because so many of Frank's books almost never directly contain paragraphs about epic battles or like right. high octane action. Like there's no fist fist fights in Frank's books. He just skips them. He just skips them. <laughs> He's like, and then there was a fight. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> All of that stuff in Frank's books happens off page. And the books are much more concerned with the aftermath, with the resolution of these huge moments. Of course, in like a film or TV adaptation, you got to show that stuff. You got to have those big cinematic moments and the huge set pieces. Yeah. The end of the Dune book, to be totally fair, feels a little rushed. Like things are happening so fast and major events are being skipped over or happening totally off page. And it's nice to see them play out in a way that is emotional. And we get to see these moments that are huge and impactful for our characters actually play out on the screen in a way where we don't see them laid out in words in the book. 
it's nice to see the miniseries slow down and spend time on moments like little baby Leto's death or Alia's capture. That whole attack on that siege by the Sardaukar totally happens off page in the book. Beast Raban's death. Beast Raban's death, right? Like such a huge character in the first half of the book gets wiped off page in the second half. It's so funny. These are all, again, moments that are ripe for emotional gut punches or resolutions. Like seeing Raban die is so important because of what that means to Gurney. Gurney sticks around with the smugglers because he fucking hates Raban. They got beef. Yeah. We don't see Gurney in this adaptation. Instead, they use Raban's death here to show us Arakeen rising up, but it's still effective. It's still used in a way that it never is in the book because it's like one sentence in the book. And so I loved that. I loved that the miniseries took these plot points that are kind of rushed in the end of the actual novel and uses them to great effect in this episode. The other thing I'll call out is... I liked how much Emperor we saw in this as well. I liked that we kept cutting back to the Emperor and his team just totally thrown off by these Muad'Dib feet picks, <laughs> trying to figure out how to defeat the man. I, they keep saving to my phone. I don't know how this keeps happening. <laughs> I swear I didn't Google search this, so I don't know where this history came from. What are these cookies and why are they saved to my computer? <laughs> <laughs> Shadam, it says you have an account to muadibfeedpicks.com. <laughs> what? No, you have a saved password here. What is. <laughs> yeah. Bro, you got an Only Siege account. I see it. <laughs> only Siege. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. We're, we're, we are quickly tumbling down a, a dangerous territory. Let me reel us back in. <laughs> sure. This cutting back to the Emperor and seeing so much more of him, especially leading up to the Battle of Arakeen really gave the sense of this cat and mouse chase between the powers of the Imperium and Muad'Dib and the Fremen. And it gave me these vibes of like the Empire versus the Rebels in Star Wars. That I think is very much missing from the end of the book because we basically only see everything from Paul's view. And here in the miniseries, we get a grander picture of the events taking place in the rest of the Empire, which I loved. Yeah, actually seeing Shaddam like with charts and paper spread out on the table i'm like oh he's an emperor with a job like right. <laughs> how cool versus in the book we really only see him at the end get all of his shit stolen and he's like sitting on the dais like he's he's there and people care about him but like what does he do we don't really see much of that so to see any of it makes it feel like so much more of a real you know real universe like a filled out universe i agree yeah definitely and i'm really interested to wrap up my point here i'm really interested to see how denny adapts these final climactic scenes because again there's just so many holes that can be filled in here or adapted in a, in a different way for a di different effect and i am very curious what direction denny villeneuve will take it and I'm super curious if he'll take any cues from the miniseries. Maybe he will also show us scenes like Raban's downfall or Baby Leto's death. It would be cool if he did. And I think they're important scenes that deserve to make it on screen. But depending on how closely you follow the book, technically all of that stuff happens off page. So right. I think this was a really good decision on the miniseries part 
to, again, pull these scenes out of the shadows and shine a light on them. I hope Denis Villeneuve follows suit in his adaptation, because I think these are pivotal scenes that can be used very effectively. And they add to our understanding of this universe and this story. Indeed. There's so much to do right and so much to do wrong. (laughs) It's a scary position to be in. With that in mind, let's get ready to transition and talk about things we didn't like from this series and from this adaptation. Before we do, we're going to take a quick break. So stick around. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. So let's get into some of the things in this miniseries that didn't work for us. And to kick it off, Leo, I will hand it off to you first. What was item number one that you disliked about this episode? Well, as always, I struggled to come up with these. No, actually, these came pretty quickly. (laughs) Jessica learned of her father's identity way too fucking late in the show. For as accurate as this miniseries is, Jessica learning that she is the daughter of Baron Harkonnen at the point where it happens in this miniseries is kind of a problem. Now, they very early on skipped the still tent scene, and that's when Paul begins to have these visions. He goes, I know you're pregnant. I know your father is Baron Harkonnen. And he says it, and in the book, Jessica's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, okay. The still tent scene, I think, is perfectly written. And they chose not to do it that way. They chose to kind of spread out those conversations to different parts of the series. Yeah. But because they made those adjustments, this is coming way too late. And I'm not even necessarily talking about pacing. Like, I think you and I talked about this before we were recording. I think theatrically it works. It's a fun beat, you know, before the final battle to find out that the big bad is the grandfather of the main character. What? Whoa, crazy. But Jessica at this point has other memory. Right. Jessica, for two years... (laughs) That's such a good point. ...has had access to every female ancestor memory. Does that mean she can talk to Baron? No. Does that mean she can talk to whoever slept with Baron? Yes. Yeah. 100%. Uh Uh-huh. 100%. Even has those memories. And has the memories of sleeping with Baron. That's, listen, other memory, take it or leave it. It's a mixed bag. You win some, you lose some. She... It's it's funny, yeah. You win some, you lose some, and you have sex with everybody. That's how Look, everybody's works. ancestors fucked some hotties and fucked some not so hotties. It's fine. Some not some notties, yeah. <laughs> hotties and notties. It's true. It just feels like they realized too late that they had to include this reveal. And no, or maybe they just treated it theatrically, but it feels like a theatrical decision. What is good drama? At the expense of lore accuracy. Right. Also, I just think Jessica's terribly written during this scene. Because again, even when she is told it out of the blue by Paul early in Dune, she goes, oh yeah, that makes sense. And her panicking, I don't know, that whole scene read as like, they wrote this thinking about viewers who are not deeply familiar with Dune. Yeah. Didn't feel like they were writing this from the perspective of, what would Jessica of House Harkonnen say and do? Anyway, that's my that's my first pick. What about you? 
What's, what is the first thing that kind of rubbed you the wrong way from today's episode? It's about time we have this conversation, Leo. I wanted to talk about this all the way back in episode one, and I held off, but I can hold off no longer. We got to talk about these hats. Oh, I was hoping you were talking about pugs. Okay, yeah. <laughs> these hats. hats. Right. The hats in this miniseries. Uh, look, I'm not going to mince words here. The hats are, in a word, bad. <laughs> they are outlandish and garish to the point of being so distracting and feeling so out of place in this universe. Even in the established aesthetic of this miniseries universe, they feel out of place, which is so weird. Yeah. It's like we created this meticulous world building and then threw in this weird thing that doesn't make sense. The everything. Like I'm not talking like just one person's weird hat stood out. The the pointy hats of the guild members, the giant winged hats <laughs> of the Benny Jesuit, that like enormous thing that Moheim is wearing, the floppy hats that the Sardaukar are wearing into battle. I can understand that being like a ceremonial thing you wear at a whatever at a medal ceremony. Why are they wearing these like silly hats in, <laughs> during a raid into a siege? It's such a weird decision in the costume design, and it makes it hard to take a lot of these things seriously. Like the Sardaukar in particular, I think were mishandled in this series because they do not come off as menacing in any way. And I think the hats, no. honestly, the hats have a lot to do with that. It's just hard to take anyone seriously when they're when they're wearing hats like that. You know what the guild hats remind me of? What are those? You know those crackers? Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh! That you put on your when you put on your you fingers, put on your fingers and you, like, and you have nail fingers? fingers and you're yeah. yes. What are those crackers? Those guild hats. Guild hats. Let's just call them guild hats from guild now. Guild hats. <laughs> so silly. So silly. And the what and the, the fact that those? you looked at someone's costume and was like, that looks like a treat. <laughs> that looks like a salty like snack. a salty snack that I'd get from Walmart. Yeah, it, it's. I think it's a bad look all around. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but there are worse examples of hats than the outlandish ones. Because I think beyond mm. just the super expressive hats, there's just a bunch of just like super flat, boring hats. Yeah. Like, I don't know what that thing that Fenring is, has on his head is, but it's not a hat. I have no idea. Like, I don't know what dictates a hat, you know, like somebody fight me on the semantics here, but like <laughs> he just has this like purple cloth on his head and it looks so terrible yeah and you know we, we've talked so much in these three episodes about the bold decisions that this series has made you have maybe landed more warmly on these decisions than i have and i've been a bit more critical but i think at the end of the day both of us have agreed that being bold is always better than being boring yes this is where i would amend that statement a bit and say, for me, there's also a difference between a bold choice with a purpose and a vision, which I think a lot of this series has, and a bold choice that is just there for the sake of being bold and loud and getting people to notice, which is where I think the fucking hats fall. Yeah. I hated them in almost every scene. They were so incredibly <laughs> distracting. And I think what's ultimately the most disappointing to me about these hats is that in a series that is so incredibly good about the subtle world building. You pointed out that amazing glow glow point in the last episode. Right. It's just disappointing to see them make such a obviously loud and obnoxious decision in the costume design that doesn't feel like it's part of the world at all. 
when it treats so much of the rest of the world building so well and is so subtle about it. My annoyance with the hats actually kind of extends beyond just the headwear to the overall costume design too. I disliked almost all of it, to be totally honest. The, the like weird karate outfit that Paul's wearing at the end is so weird. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, you know, I don't want to harp too much on that point, on the costume design. I'll leave it at the hats. There's nothing, I guess, objectively wrong with the costume design. That is a very subjective preference on my part. I'm more inclined to like a muted, more minimalist aesthetic over something that's colorful and flashy, but that doesn't make one better than the other. That is just the kind of aesthetic that I prefer and why I, I love the Danny Villeneuve adaptation so much. It is very minimalist. Well, I was going to say, like, the, a lot of the Fremen outfits, when they're, like, in the sieges, and, like, Chani has a particular, like, look to her clothes that I really liked. And I remember catching myself going, like, I love that top. Like, Chani, nice top. <laughs> and in general, I think you're right. It's like they decided anything that has to do with the Imperium has to be, like, big and gaudy. I got to ask myself, I wonder if in the same way that Cackling Baron is maybe a byproduct of David Lynch getting his fingerprints all over Dune, do you think this is a byproduct of Jodorowsky? Oh, my gosh. I could see it. Because, like, the worst outfits are look like they're straight from the, the Jodorowsky, Jodorowsky sketches, sketches. Right. That is such a good point. I hadn't thought of that. I mean, it's possible. It's again, remember that this is 20 years ago and this is the first time a lot of this stuff has been imaged. But the only other time it had been imaged was for Lynch and then for Jodorowsky or other way around Jodorowsky and then Lynch. That's such a great point. And I, I remember actually, as we're talking, I remember you mentioned to me that maybe in the behind the scenes book or maybe in an interview you sent me at some point, the director told his crew to think of the story as like Shakespeare in space. Yeah. It's closer to Shakespeare than Star Trek or space. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And a lot of this series strikes me as really leaning into that, including the costume design. The costume design straight up feels that like out of like a Romeo and Juliet Shakespearean play. Oh, especially the Sardaukar. Especially yeah, the so Sardaukar. Floppish. <laughs> Froppy? Froppy? Floppy? Yeah. <laughs> Something with an F. So that I think is also part of where maybe the aesthetic comes from, is the director really wanted to lean into this Shakespearean play idea. And I think that seeps into things beyond the costume design as well. The way the shots are directed, the way the actors are like sort of over the top with the scenes. It's all very like stage play. And... I think that affected the costumes, too. They feel like Shakespearean costumes, which was, again, just a choice. Not one that I liked, but a choice nonetheless. The hats, though, those still sucked. That's a hill I'm ready to die on. <laughs> Don't at me about that, listener. Okay, I'm done. Let me get off my pedestal here about the hats. Leo, what was item number two that didn't work for you? So, hear me out. I loved the final fight. I had so much fun with it. Uh, Fade Routha doing a full front flip mid-fight <laughs> so over <funny>. Paul. Incredible. <laughs> Paul, like, weirding, juking the way. Again, he tapped O. He did his, like, dodge mechanic, full invincibility frames. But then Fade going, like, full tumble because of that. So many incredible 
silly moments that I loved, none of it's remotely Dune. (laughs) None of it is remotely (laughs) the final fight of Dune. Like, I understand the, the final scene from a theatrical standpoint, a television standpoint, but it utterly lacks the subtlety of Paul and Fade's duel, which in the book I think is a masterpiece. And yeah. it really solidifies that mantra of plans within plans within plans. A lot of layers to the fight in the book. And a lot of layers that I think are frankly hard to capture on screen. You got to pick and choose what to oh, what yeah. to lean into. No, 100%. And this is also pre, like, I think about movies like Sherlock Holmes, where we see Sherlock plan out every single move and then execute. And we see it first in like super slow motion in this kind of analytical mode. And then we see the fight actually happen. And I think that is the sort of treatment necessary to do this sort of like highly internal fight. And I don't know that I'd seen that ever done in film or TV before Sherlock Holmes. So I don't know. You're totally right. Like, my problem is this masterpiece of a fight scene is everything that's great about Dune wrapped into a single moment. But a lot of what's great about Dune is not something you can show on camera. It's <laughs> right. like a dissertation in, in like, in faints yeah. and, you know, sleight of hand. And so you're right. I mean, I don't know. This version is fun, but it's just very Hollywood. It paints Paul to be this... Paul is taking so many fucking punches and he's suddenly not <laughs> nearly the dude he was with the Sardaukar even. And then I'm like, is Fade that much better than a Sardaukar? Are you kidding me? Really? And I, I, I think the fight needs to feel as climactic as it is in this adaptation. Like, I think this adaptation did a good job of making the fight as climactic as it needs to be. But I don't think it's a good decision to have it like lots of cuts, lots of exchanged like punches and tumbling and like that makes it feel very here's just two fucking bar bar fighters yeah. who are like out in the you know every punch has no consequence and every cut is just a cut. I feel like it is safer to do the like fun then he gets cut on the stomach and oh he's got this big voice blood on the stomach. I feel like that's so safe. I don't want safe choices. What bold choices? More anime. More Make it anime. 20% more anime. You know what? Drag that fight scene out for three episodes. I'll watch it. <laughs> Give us six commercial breaks <laughs> in the midst of the fight scene. It's fine. Ultimately, dude, I think, I think unironically, anime is like a masterclass for taking a two-second thing and giving you all of the perspective you yes. need to get hyped in it. Yeah. Just, oh. It's so yeah, good. Anyway. Totally. I agree. I agree. Like I'm not I'm not saying go full anime, but like twenty percent more anime is just what this scene needs. We'll have to see how Villeneuve handles this moment, but that's my second pick. What about you? Where are you at with your second pick? So my second pick is a character that I think was done dirty by this miniseries. We've talked a lot about how Chani, Yerlan, a lot of characters were handled well. Count Fenring was not. Right. Yeah. I think this is another instance where the casting choice was just so wrong. Like, this dude is definitely not the deadly right-hand man of the emperor and a former Kwisatz Haderach candidate. I don't believe it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. In this miniseries, 
he's kind of just relegated to be nothing more than the mostly silent henchman that Irulan sometimes argues with. He has so few lines. He has so few scenes. And when he is in those scenes, he's like in the background, like skulking. Very weird. Yeah. There are some iconic Fenring scenes in the book too. And they're omitted in this miniseries. Namely, this moment at the very end of the book where he refuses to kill Paul because both Paul and Fenring recognize the connection they both share as Kwisatz Haderach candidates. And he turns to the emperor and he's like, no, I won't kill Paul Atreides. And then the emperor <laughs> bitch slaps him. Right. That is completely missing from the miniseries. And, you know, to be fair, as much as you and I stand Fenring on this podcast, we have to admit that it is true that he basically only shows up for a couple of scenes in the book. And in the grand scheme of things, he's a pretty minor character. I'll never admit that. <laughs> <laughs> he's the most important character. You know, no, I, you're right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's fair. And so I don't want to dig at the miniseries too much for cutting this character because, again, he is so minor. But come on. He's a failed former Kwisatz Haderach candidate. He deserves more than to be relegated to this role as like the quiet emperor's henchman sulking in the background all the time. Right. The miniseries treated Irulan's character so well and handled her story so well. And it's such a damn shame that Fenring couldn't also get the same glow up here. Would have loved to see it. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. Well, those are the things that didn't quite work for us in this episode. But of course, we don't like to end an episode on a sour note. So Leo, how about we both share our favorite scenes from part three? You go first. So the first of my nine favorite <laughs> scenes uh, is, no, I flagged two scenes as my favorites and I will only share one. If you want to know what the other one is, message us on Discord or send us an email. There you go. That, that's a good tease. Damn. I know. The foreplay. Jeez. So saucy. <laughs> I took off my socks as I said that. <laughs> Gurney's attempt on Jessica is incredible. I think that whole scene was very, very well done, in my opinion. First of all, we get none of the traitor backstory, really. Like, we don't really get that harped upon the way that we do in the book. Yeah. So when Jessica's like alone in this room and she goes and, and like the the glow globe fizzles out and she's like, the fuck? <laughs> and then just suddenly Gurney's there with a knife to her throat. I was genuinely surprised. And I know this story. Like, I know what's going to happen. I think it's a very effective moment. Yeah. And looking back, there are foreshadowed beats, right? When Paul tells Gurney, Oh, yeah, like, we'll meet with Jessica. Gertie goes, Jessica's, we, we were told she was dead. And Paul knows, like, no, she's alive. And Paul walks off and Gurney has a moment where he kind of looks introspectively and then moves on. So they do set it up, but just very subtly. So I don't think it's unearned, is my, is my point. I don't think they just tossed this in there. So to have it feel so surprising, but then to look back and to see the little breadcrumbs laid out was very satisfying. I took a note as I was watching this in Newark Airport. Uh -huh. And this is, I think this encapsulates my feeling about this little scene. Quote, 
We didn't get the lead up to this moment. Super shocking, though. Very effective scene. They nailed the tension, and this gives Paul reason to do the spice agony. It's so good. Fuck. Fuck. It's so good. End quote. Hilarious. I love that you also quoted yourself. <laughs> Listen. Quote, to quote me. <laughs> as the author Leo once wrote. <laughs> fuck. In fuck, the script fuck, just fuck, now. Fuck. <laughs> fuck. It's so good. Fuck. <laughs> no, I love that. No, that, that's like a very genuine, like honest reaction, you know, to seeing it. I was taking notes throughout, and it's funny to go back and to just see my absolute, <laughs> like, I think when the glow globe fizzled out, I went, how? How did you do that? <laughs> anyway, so that's my pick. What about you? Do you have a, what, what's your favorite scene from this episode? So we haven't talked a lot about Alia yet, but I saved it because I wanted to talk about it here in my favorite scene. I loved, right before the assault of Arakeen begins, that scene where Alia confronts the Baron and Shaddam, where she's been captured, yeah. she's brought in to the pavilion and has to confront them. She's adorable and weird, which <laughs> makes great. her more adorable. Yeah. And you mentioned it earlier, but I agree. I think the young girl that plays Alia handles the role fairly well. It's an extremely complex role that it's not easy for anyone of any age to handle, let alone a child. Right. And I think she did a pretty good job with it. This scene with the Baron and Shaddam gives her the chance to really shine also. This is probably the most on-camera time she gets. And it's so funny and good and kind of cheesy and over the top, which really is just like a summary of my feelings on this whole miniseries. <laughs> right. Moheim. Cowering in the corner, so funny, hilarious. It's like, killer, killer, abomination, abomination. Alia's iconic defiance of the emperor, so good. Yes. I found myself oh holding my, my breath. And all of that, of course, culminates in her sticking her grandfather with the Gamjabar. Amazing. And she said the iconic line too. Grandfather, you've met the Atreides Gamjabar. So good. Grandfather. <laughs> So good. <laughs> so good. I also couldn't help but laugh at her like little skedaddle away when the storm comes <laughs> down and everyone in the room panics yeah. and she's just like, oh, I'm getting the fuck out of here. <laughs> Cartoon running noise. Yeah. yeah. It was good. It was cute. It was quirky. It was weird and kind of cheesy. And I think it worked. I think it worked with Alia. I think trying to translate a character like Alia is one of the biggest challenges that Denny Villeneuve faces in part two and that any adaptation of Dune faces. It's no easy task. And I think this is an area where the miniseries showed restraint rather than leaning into it or going over the top. They just reeled it back in a bit. Yeah. She really just comes off as like kind of a weird child but not so creepy that it's hard to believe. And ultimately, I think it ends up in an Alia that is easy to cheer for on screen because she's this like cute little badass murdering the bad guys. It's awesome. It's amazing. I, I completely agree. Also, took note of the fact that the Atreides Gamjabar's a ring. Yeah. I that? noticed that as like well. The, the Cobra ring. Yeah. Another Gamjabar design. We're going to have to update our fucking logo again. I have to update it again. We're 20 years late <laughs> on this one. Oh, shit. I agree. I also love her little, 
my brother's my brother's here. here. Yeah, that made me laugh. Little too. sing song, it's just so good. Yeah, let the storm take what it will. All of her lines in this scene were so iconic. They were so well delivered. the The little girl did a really good job. I believed it. I was like, "That's Alia. That's Alia of the night." Baron, very slowly floating over to her, <laughs> and then picking her up. He's like, "I, I got her. I got." The speed of his suspensors was particularly funny in this adaptation. He, he forgot <laughs> to charge the batteries, you know. <laughs> They're very low. <laughs> yeah. They're in <laughs> granny gear. <laughs> well, I think with that, it's about time to wrap up our deep dive into Frank wow. Herbert's Dune. <sighs> wow. What an epic ride. Tru- truly the most epic of worm rides across the desert, start to finish. <laughs> so much fun, though. I, I, I personally agree. had a lot of fun going back, watching these episodes again, hearing your thoughts as you text me. Just <laughs> the front flip in all caps is a lot of fun. I think, you know, people have asked if we're going to do the follow-up miniseries, the Children of Dune miniseries, and happy to say, we 100% will. Are you kidding me? We must. But it will likely be after our Children of Dune book club. Uh, which is starting on May 20th, as we announced last week. Right. And, you know, that that pleases my OCD to do the book club first <laughs> and then talk about this miniseries that covers it. So in a way that that makes sense, at least in my brain. We'll also actually probably do another episode on this miniseries, a part four, mm-hmm. just because we want to collect some of our broader thoughts about the series as a whole, all three episodes. And to touch on some of the things that we frankly didn't have time to get into in these deep dives. So stay tuned for that as well. It won't happen right away, but we are going to revisit the series once again in a part four at some point very soon. So if you have thoughts or questions or comments about the sci-fi miniseries. Perfect. Yeah. Now's the perfect time to reach out to us either on Discord if you're a patron in the Discord or via email at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Maybe we'll finally learn the truth behind those bugle hats <laughs> of the uh, guild folk. <laughs> Here's to hoping. The mystery of the hats. I need to know. The mystery of the hats. Was it you, Jodorowsky? Was it you? <laughs> you son of a bitch. You son of a bitch. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path. All right. Welcome to... Ooh, just slapped my <clears> mic <throat> as soon as I said that. That was a weird reaction. It's okay. I liked it. <laughs>